The scripture reading for today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 7 through 12. And he called to him the twelve, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Where you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. And if any place will not receive you, and they refuse to hear you, when you leave, shake off the dust that that is on your feet for a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed them with oil, and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. The word of the Lord. One hot summer day, while sitting on the porch with my brother Kellen, I saw two teenage Mormon missionaries walking up our street. I'm going to talk to him, I said. Kellen rolled his eyes. He doesn't like to meddle, and my idea had metal written all over it. I walked to the edge of my yard and invited the teens up to the porch. Hey guys, it's pretty hot out here. Can I offer you a glass of water? I asked. Evidently, they weren't used to being approached by others. Because it took them a moment to digest my question. The blonde 19-year-old with the name tag reading Elder Rogers spoke first. That's real nice of you, but we actually have water. But uh, would you want to talk to us a little about faith? This is where things got tricky, because Kellen had made me promise that I would not talk about religion with the Mormons. I'm a pastor, and most of my roommates, Kellen included, had converted to agnosticism after four years of Bible college. So to keep the peace, we try to avoid the topic whenever possible. I looked over over Elder Roger's shoulder into the middle distance and said, you can sit with us, but unfortunately, we just can't talk about religion. They looked at each other for a moment as if searching for the appropriate response they had learned in missionary school. Brown-haired Elder Proctor gave Elder Elder Rogers a furrowed brow and said, well, we aren't here just to hang out. We have to do missionary stuff, so I guess we'll have to take a rain check. Okay, but you're welcome to hang out at any time, just no religious stuff, I said. I walked back to the porch and bet Kellen a Coke that I could get Elder Rogers and Elder Proctor to play a tennis match with me by the end of the summer. I wasn't just talking to these Mormons to win a bet. To this day, I feel bad for Mormon missionaries because most people simply ignore or insult them. I once saw two Mormons trailing grocery shoppers through a parking lot until a police officer asked them to move along. Move along? That's what you say to homeless people. These missionaries who were trying to perform the enormous service of saving stranger souls from hell were treated by this officer like social pariahs. It can't be easy walking up like lost penguins through neighborhoods in white shirts and ill-fitting black pants, interrupting people's lives with questions like, do you have a minute for the Lord? And can I talk to you about the gospel? And I'm grateful that Mormon missionaries care enough about total strangers to try to save them. And I'm not saying that becoming a Mormon will keep you out of hell. I'm just saying that these Mormons think so, and they want to save you from it. So I say we ought to cut them some slack when they interrupt our breakfast or our stroll through the park. Any Mormon will tell you he or she is just following Jesus' instructions. 
Jesus sent Peter and company out into the streets, telling them to interrupt people's lives. Going door to door, and most of the time, the disciples ended up in prison or under a pile of rocks. Going door to door can be a dangerous business. I know firsthand how awkward being a door to door spokesman for the Lord can be. In high school, I went door to door in the slums of Peru. It was especially awkward there because I couldn't speak a word of Spanish. And our youth pastor had told us to lead people through a rather complicated conversion ritual. I remember knocking on a street of corrugated tin doors with two of my friends and a Peruvian translator. The slum was 80% Catholic and considered unsaved, and 20% Pentecostal, which was still considered iffy. The first door we knocked on was opened by a young Latina who was bouncing a baby in her arms. Hola, she said. Hola, we said with thick Midwestern accents. She was clearly surprised to have two white people who couldn't speak Spanish at her doorstep. She stood there expectantly, waiting for us to explain ourselves. We just stood there staring at each other for a moment. Then we, ins- then we invited ourselves in, our adrenaline raging. She dusted off two overturned buckets for us to sit on. And after we sat, I began asking her probing questions about her faith. She said she was Catholic. I looked at my friend with a knowing glance. Bingo. We invited her to accept Jesus into her heart. Again, we stared at each other in silence, light streaming in through the holes in her ceiling. I still have absolutely no idea what she interpreted that question to mean, but she said yes. We prayed the saving prayer, hugged her, and proudly marched to the local market and bought a month's worth of rice for our new sister in Christ. She was clearly surprised at the turn of events and thanked us profusely. At the time, I thought she was just enthusiastic to be saved. Looking back, she was probably thanking us for the rice. Conversion was more difficult on the home front. My church insisted that we share our faith at school. And when word got around my high school that I believed people who hadn't welcomed Jesus into their hearts were going to hell, my popularity plummeted. So I mostly stuck to hanging out with other heaven-bound teens. A few days after my first encounter with Elder Rogers and Elder Proctor, the two teens came ambling down my street again. This time, I was shirtless on a rocking chair, wearing a big straw hat. I had just brewed some iced tea, and completely forgetting that Mormons don't drink caffeine, I offered them a glass. They looked at each other as if to reaffirm the plan they had concocted and headed up the stairs. No, thank you. We don't drink tea, they said politely. Their short sleeves had huge pit stains, and their name tags were crooked. The heat was getting to them. I told them my roommates were gone so we could proceed with the religious talk. I asked them where they were from, and they both said somewhere in Utah. They had been, been assigned to the LDS local church and were supposed to walk the neighborhood sharing their faith. I asked them how many people they had converted so far that summer. Nobody yet, Elder Rogers said with apprehension in his voice. But we're just sowing seeds and letting God water them, Elder Proctor added with forced optimism. I couldn't believe it. They had been walking for eight hours, six days a week, and converted nobody? In high school, I had converted that Latina in like five minutes. (laughs) Well, your uniforms don't help. You're just two nice guys trying to share some good news with people. But your uniforms make people feel like you're in a cult. And you should also use your first names. What are your first names, by the way? Elder Proctor looked down at himself. His face betrayed his own misgivings about their get-ups. We have to wear these uniforms. 
Everyone does during their mission years. And we're not allowed to use our first names, Elder Roger added. I later found out from an ex-Mormon that the use of first names was banned early on in Mormonism after some missionaries were accused of getting too personal during house calls. You guys should try being more casual. Start by getting to know people. That's what we were taught to do at my church. Build some trust. Talking to strangers about religious questions right off the bat tends to freak them out. Why was I giving them tips on how to convert people when I don't even believe in Mormonism? I was a pastor. Shouldn't I be trying to convert them? But I knew my converting days were over. Saving someone meant something different to me by the time I met Elder Proctor and Elder Rogers. Over the next few weeks, they began to stop by on a weekly basis. We didn't discuss much theology, just sipped lemonade and talked about how hot it was. Life in Utah versus life in the Midwest. And eventually they would stand up and say, well, we better get back to it. And then I would see them accost the first person they saw on the street. More often than not, it was my 15-year-old neighbor, Julius. Julius spent most afternoons at our house watching YouTube and digging through our fridge. He and his two brothers were adopted from West Africa by a saint of a woman two houses down. We let Julius pester us into seeing the newest hip-hop videos because he needed a little brotherly guidance. Actually, he needed a lot of it. Julius was taken from his parents and forced to be a child soldier in an African civil war. At the age of seven, he was given an AK-47 and forced to use it. Julius never liked to talk about his experiences as a child soldier, but sometimes he'd pick up a picture of the kids in Kenya I work with carrying guns and herding cattle and say things like, I did that, or that looks like my home. I'd say it must have been hard and that I was sorry. Then we'd go back to YouTube. Or girls. Julius loves girls. And he can usually win them over with his infectious laugh, his wit, and his broken English. After landing a hot date at a local Burger King, he shouted from our porch, Thank you, Burger King, for making girls love me so much. So when Elder Rogers and Proctor disappeared into Julius's house to watch some Mormon propaganda video, I wondered if they were going to listen to Julius' story or train him to be a Mormon child soldier. I could have stopped them or told his parents that their child was in danger of being brainwashed, but after so many cups of lemonade, I started to think that maybe Elder Rogers and Proctor deserved a chance. But then I saw them emerge a half hour later chatting about God knows what and changed my mind. I waved Julius over to set him straight. I chose my words carefully. I didn't want Julius to stop seeing them, just to stop taking them seriously. Elder Rogers and Proctor are very nice guys, but you know, you shouldn't believe everything you hear. The elders believe some kind of weird stuff. Julius smiled wide. Yeah, I know. I just bored and they something to do. Well played, Julius, I thought to myself. Elder Rogers and Proctors continue to miss out on the ministries that were right in front of them. They seemed so fixated on converting people that they forgot to meet people. In August, they had told me they were moving on to holier pastures in the fall. The time to act was now. Hey, are either of you interested in getting together later this week and playing a little tennis? I know you guys are athletes. They agreed. I smiled at Kelling, sitting right next to me. He chimed in. You two sure you have time? There's a lot of people out there to talk to smiling back at me. The match was set for the following Monday. They were going to bring an extra person to play doubles. Predictably, they biked up to the courts wearing their Mormon uniforms, and I showed up wearing my Reggie Miller basketball jersey. 
What was surprising was the teenager pushing a shopping cart full of plastic bags and ratty clothes next to Elder Rogers and Proctor. He parked his cart next to the court and pulled out a wooden racket with broken strings. Then he tied his dreadlocks with shoelaces and introduced himself. Uh, yeah, I'm Eric. I'm supposed to play tennis or something? I noticed the cardboard sign sticking halfway out of his cart with the words, God bless, written in black marker. I'm Nathan. I live down the block. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's a rad place. I'm from Cleveland, but people are real nice here. He seemed a little drunk. The elders were already stretching on the court. So, boys, can we use your first names for the, today's friendly match, I smiled. I knew the answer, but I just wanted to hear it. We split up Mormons versus non-Mormons, and, er, and, started, and Eric started falling all over the court. But I'm decent at tennis, so we started winning. Rogers was much more competitive than I had imagined. I saw his backhand was pretty weak, and I wanted to push his buttons. He missed two shots and swore under his breath. What was that, Rogers, I said? Proctor looked dumbfounded at his partner. Rogers pulled it together, smiling through his beet red face. Nothing, nothing at all. I couldn't get over how polished these two were. The slightest glimpse of humanity was quickly covered up or ignored. I bet Rogers was going to get a talking to for the slip at their prayer meeting tonight. I felt kind of bad. I knew how he felt because I had gotten my fair share of tongue lashings for swearing at Bible camp. Between points, I could hear a middle-aged man with a limp swearing at his daughter four courts down. You're not hustling. Then, this is ridiculous. Just move your stupid feet. The daughter was about three feet tall and playing at a semi-pro level to sprite her limping dad. I'd seen this middle-aged clown and his semi-pro daughter at the courts before. She always looked frustrated, but in an, in an this-will-all-be-worth-it-after-my-third-Olympic-gold sort of way. But that day, she broke down. She pleaded, I can't do it, Daddy. A, a few missed shots later, she threw a racket down and started sobbing. I'd been meaning to give this guy a piece of my mind for, for months, but had never found that this-is-too-far moment. I shouted down the court in my concerned-slash-angry neighbor voice. Hey, why don't you knock it off? She's obviously upset. He was ready for me. Why don't you lose some weight and mind your own business? I was momentarily stunned by his middle school wit. I did need to lose some weight. In fact, that's why I'd started playing tennis in the first place. You're making it my business by shouting your abuses across the court, I yelled. The girl stopped crying and stared at me with apprehension. I hoped my involvement wasn't going to make things worse for her. Visions of her dad's fist blaming this all on her flew past me. Then I wondered if it came to it, whether it was socially acceptable to club this child abuser in his bum leg with my tennis racket. Idiot was all he could come up with, and then he went back to hurling out insults at a lower volume. I turned around to see Proctor and Roger looking dumbstruck. My fist was clenched. Hey, you guys would have backed me up if that guy had started throwing punches, right? The elders looked at each other, then looked down sensing how I was going to respond. I totally think you were right to say something, but we aren't allowed to fight anybody in our uniforms. You understand, said Elder Proctor. I understood. I understood that they would have stood by and watched me fight it out just to maintain some sense of sanctity. I stared at them in disbelief. That was the last straw. I had spent the summer with these two teenagers as they avoided real ministry because of their religious obligations. They refused to get involved with anyone's life that didn't fit neatly within the institutional confines of Mormonism. It was like hanging out with two modern-day junior Pharisees. They were so obsessed with maintaining their facade that they ended up missing the people they were trying to help. Don't read this. Don't go there. Don't date now. There was some religious reason for everything. I wanted to shake them and shout, Wake up! 
Nobody's converting because they don't want to be like you. And in the midst of my indignation and judgment of these two well-intentioned, but in my view, misguided teens, I had, had that inevitable moment that comes with being a follower of Jesus. The old take-the-plank-out-of-your-own-eye moment. The dehumanizing feeling of being approached as an object of conversion, not met as a person, that had been simmering me all summer long with the Mormons, had finally boiled over. And when it did, I realized it must be how my 10th grade girlfriend felt when I broke up with her for not being a born-again Christian. Or how my Jewish friend Tom, my sophomore year of college, felt when I confessed to him that I thought the entire Jewish community center was going to hell. The blend of rage and hurt I saw in their eyes were now in my own. I was such a hypocrite. I should have had endless, patient for Proctor, endless patience for Proctor and Rogers. Growing up, I was just like them. Right up through high school and college, when I went to Peru and Greece, and I might have lived my whole life that way, had Jesus not pulled me out of it. But still, I couldn't fight back the anger. Jesus said, forgive 70 times 70. When they were doing what they were told, and they were just doing what they were told, following the instructions. I mean, how could I blame them? It was all they knew. But the sympathy I felt at the beginning of the summer was gone. Rogers and Proctor biked off, and Eric and I sat on the bench catching our breath after a close second set. Eric braided, unbraided his dreadlocks and took a deep drink of my water and looked at me. Can you help me find a place to sleep tonight? I looked at his God bless sign and then at the, elder, at the elders biking away. I had worked with homeless kids enough to know what can happen when you sleep in a park. I told him I knew some people who ran a Christian halfway house about a mile away. I called them and found a bed for, for the night. As he pushed his cart down the street, he yelled back, I would have totally helped you fight that dad. His fist punching the air. I smiled and walked home to get that coke Kellen owed me. <laughs>